Everyone, welcome to another edition of Founder Wisdom Podcast. Today we have a very interesting guest. His name is Archer Salsa. He is CEO and founder of Adopt Pets, and he has led a bunch of other interesting startups. And just before we hit the record button, him and I were talking about the nature of being an entrepreneur, the why, and, and so forth. So we may talk a bit more about that, about pets, about entrepreneurship, and a whole bunch of other topics in between. So Archer, welcome to the pod. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and Adopt Pets? Thanks, Charles. Um, I'm very happy to be here. Um, Adopt Pets was born, uh, you know, uh, nearly seven years back. Um, we were born through fully out of you know, um, an opportunity. We yeah. we uh, were opportunistic. We were looking at my wife and I at the time. We wanted to adopt a pet. We hated the process, Charles. Mm -hmm. You know, way too cumbersome, very uh, paper driven, very manual. Mm -hmm. um, and we had an assumption back then. We were like, well, if we make this system, mm -hmm. you know a little bit more automatic, a little bit more self-driven and a little bit more engaging. Could we reduce the time that the animal spent at an animal shelter, therefore saving more lives by, you know, optimizing the, the, the adoption process? And that was yeah. the assumption back then. Nice. Um, in fairness, um, there was a lot of wrong assumptions. Uh, at first, we thought we could solve that from the consumer standpoint. So we built an entire platform that was a B2C system, yeah. helping the consumer navigate the adoption process until we realized that the there was no solution on the consumer end if we didn't solve the inefficiencies on the shelter you know, end yeah. of the equation. So we switched to a B2B approach. We became a B2B2C company um, at that point. So very much focused on first uh, resolving the inefficiencies of a um, shelter organization, an animal shelter in that case, um, helping them to navigate the customer engagement factor of their organization, and then going into the consumer side of the equation and helping the consumer to find a path that we're looking for to find the new family members that would join their families. So that's kind of a, you know, snapshot of the, the journey thus far. No, it's very interesting. Thank you for, for sharing that process. And yeah, the adoption process, I mean, my little dog that I have here, uh, we adopted her in Mexico. And I mean, she's been rescued off the street by a lady that did that in her free time. And we we got her and that's it you know that was in mexico i guess in us and uh, in canada it's a bit different i certainly know that here in canada the shelters they they do uh, euthanize uh, euthanize uh, the a lot of dogs i'm not, not sure if the word uh, i said it correctly but yeah they basically kill the the dogs cuz no one wants to adopt them or they are like aggressive and and so forth so uh, have you succeeded in uh, making the needle move when it comes to um, having pets adopted quicker? And also, I want to talk about the financial side of platform because it's a startup after all. So first, let's talk about the the impact, you know, because that's a it's also a social startup. It's one of my favorite uh, types of startup. Uh, how many lives have you saved? Um, and what's it, tell us a bit more about the financials as well. So we were we are at a little bit in the past two and a half years, a little bit over three hundred thousand animals in there. Okay. 
Wow. Um, we're looking at about a million consumers going through our pages every month. Um, nice. As of 2022, um, it, it, it navigates depending on the season. Summer seasons in the U.S. usually have a higher attendance there, but um, the the average is about a million point. It's 1.1 million um, people coming to the website every month, and um, the impact in itself is relative to what I think and to what the community might think um, in, in that in that perspective. Um, we, you know, one of the most important things for us at Autopass was to really resolve inefficiencies. That meant that, you know, in a very quick example, one of the features of the systems um, that we developed is an automatic communication with potential adopters. As silly as that sounds, that meant that, you know, even if a efficient shelter had uh, template responses ready to go and they just had to copy and paste and change the, num the name of the animal, change the name of the person and go. We're still talking about a three minute on average for every animal that was adopted. Um, mm. For every email that was sent in the process of an animal getting adopted, which is on average 17 emails in there. So we are mm. talking about you know, over 45 minutes of mm. uh, time saved for every animal adopted. Now, out of past sweet spot is any shelter, including Canada, mind, mind you, you know, we have Edmonton and a few other shelters in, uh, um, in Canada there, that um, if we're looking at anywhere in between uh, 1,000 adoptions to, like we have New Zealand, the country as a client, so the entire mm -hmm. shelter network in the country is a partner of ours, um, you are multiplying that for only on that feature the 17 emails times three minutes at the very least, okay. which would be maybe copy and paste and changing the name. Um, okay. The AutoPass process really saves, uh, on average, about 85% of the usual time that it would take on adoption happening conventionally versus using the system to optimize it. Um, so um, that's really the mission that we set out to to accomplish. and. I think we can do more and we'll continue to do more. But so far, I, I am proud. I'm proud of what we have accomplished. We were oh, yeah. 300,000. That's, that's, that's huge. That's, uh, that's something to be proud of. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm like uh, not there at all in comparison, if comparison is such a thing, but good job on that. Hats off. Um, in terms of finance, like how much do these shelters pay you? You take transactional fee as well. Tell us a bit more about the, the financial side here. So it, dep it depends on the organization. The, the standard model of Autopets is on a transaction fee base. So we, we charge on every adoption completed in the system and to the shelter themselves is actually free. The transaction fees paid by the adopter on the consumer side of the, the equation. Um, the there are a few shelters, especially you know municipalities, shelters that that are owned or operated by cities, in which they have to go through procurement processes and would require an annual contract. So we have a few exceptions that will land into an annual contract that can be anywhere in between, depending on their volume of clientele we would be looking at anywhere in between 15,000 a year to $35,000 or, you know, it really, there is no roof 
to where it can go because it varies on the volume. The, the largest one we have is $40,000 a year nowadays. Um, $40,000, uh, what do you mean by that? For where the, I, I missed that part. So that's $40,000, uh, American dollars in that case a year to use the software for their, for their organization. Okay, okay. So that's not for shelters, that's more for governments. That would be for shelters that operate in a government structure kind of thing. Got it. And the private shelters, you don't charge them anything? Anything. For private huh. shelters, actually, Autopass becomes a net positive income for the organization because it's paid by the adopters and about 67% of all adopters that go through the system donate. And the donations not only cover the processing fee, but they actually go beyond into increasing the revenue for their organization. So for uh, the vast majority of our partners, we are looking at, we are actually helping them get more money than actually paying anything at all for the software. Hmm. And what are your processing fees? You take one, two, three percent? We take five dollars or five percent, depending on the on the, the adoption whichever is highest. You know, very huh. Whichever and, highest, yeah. And um, adoption and fees are for the government or or are they for the shelter? It depends. It depends on the organization. So I would say that if we were to summarize, there are three types of organizations in the animal welfare, you know, sphere. Uh, one are rescues, are just people that do out of love. They have often no business structure behind it. They are not even a nonprofit. Some are, but they are very much just a group of people that get together and, and try and help to save animals. Yeah. Then you have private shelters, which are private institutions. They're still in the nonprofit statuses around the world. Uh, but they are a little bit more organized than the rescues, which are the individuals getting together to do things. Um, usually they are larger organizations, they have a larger volume, um, and they also have the freedom to make their choices from an operational you know, decision-making standpoint. And then you have the public shelters, which are usually run and owned by cities and municipalities around the world. You've always been in social entrepreneurship slash uh, starting up social startups. So it's like, why, why have you always been that way? Why, why not like uh, for profits and capitalist heavy type of business? Well, Charles, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> because, you know, like the giving back thing to me came at least like after three, four years after I was in entrepreneurship game, most of the time I just advise people to start um, stuff up to free their time and also make money by themselves, you know, without having an employer because that's the first motivation typically in entrepreneurship. seems that you followed the other way around that you, you started giving up early and giving, um, doing charitable stuff and then you kind of discovered entrepreneurship. Am I right saying that? You're, you're you're precisely hmm. you know, accurate on that. The the I started working at first with nonprofits back in Brazil, um, and what led me to entrepreneurship, which at, at the time I didn't know was a thing, right? We were talking about eighteen years ago, give it or take. So I didn't know entrepreneurship was 
an actual thing. There was a methodology behind it. None of that. Mm -hmm. uh, what I had learned at that point was that I hated the inefficiencies of a nonprofit. So my very first business, which was um, acquired by a Japanese institution back in 2011, um, was a was a you know what we would call nowadays a social enterprise. But I didn't know that. Uh, what we were doing is that trying to create more efficiencies in the nonprofit world. I, I hated that our budget was always unpredictable. I I hated that the work being done by nonprofits is usually so passion driven and so or sorely lacking of processes and you know operational procedures that would help them to actually achieve more in doing so. So that was merely the rationale back then. And after you know selling that business to Japan, I went to Tokyo for a little while. And when I was there, I was like, oh, hell, there's a whole world about this thing. And I had no idea about it. Right. And then I, I went on to get my master's in social entrepreneurship um, in San Francisco. So there is always this lingering feeling about how can I give it back? How can I do uh, um or how can I impact and affect change in a way that is beyond just my own life and it goes, you know, to the, the broader society. But I'm not gonna lie, or or um you know give anyone the impression that that is the easiest easiest path whatsoever. My my next business is not at all in the social entrepreneurial world. Whatsoever. Well, I, I want to know about that next business. I will tell you at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us right the, now, the broad still, lines or you're still trying to figure it out? I So right now it's in stealth. We already have a few clients on it. I, I am contractually on my, uh, you know, the company that acquired my last business. I am not supposed to be doing anything else. So I can't talk about it right now okay. <laughs> in a podcast. So Adopt has been acquired or what? It has uh, closed out as of May 2022. Wow. Okay. Super cool. Uh, can you disclose the amount? I can't, unfortunately. Contractually, I cannot. But was it in the uh, seven we figures? It was in the eight figures. Holy shit. Wow. Okay. That's, I mean, yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I wasn't expecting that because I don't know, man. Well, first, I, I want to ask you that, you know, does Adopt Pet starting giving you headaches, you know, to, to reach out to these um, animal shelters type of, do you, did you have some stuff about that particular industry that would turn you off? Is that why you sold? There were a lot of things that turned me off in the process. I think uh, it, it reconnected me with my, you know, the beginning of my career working with nonprofits. Mm -hmm. um, so there were a lot of things that, you know, if I can give you an, an anecdote here is that I had a client, for instance, that sat down with me and said like, hey, you know, you, you mentioned that Autopads would be free for us, but it's not free. We are paying, a, you know, a transaction fee every time and whatnot. And then I spent a couple hours working with a client with um, their uh, re 
reports to show them that actually they were making nearly five times the amount of money they were making before. Sure. But the perspective is usually so narrow that it, it, it's it's hard. It's a very deep operational change that has, which means that our onboarding is uh, definitely a long taxing process mm. to get people to not only change their processes but understand the change behind the processes and what is it creating because um, what i've so seen in nonprofits is like people that have a big heart but don't have a big brain um in terms of business if i really want to sum it up you know they want to save the world um but just like hippies you know they don't know where to start they they lack the iq that is needed to um, save the world, you know, because you need, I mean, the heart is good. You have the intention, you have the love, you have the energy, but it's it's like energy not well spent if you don't have a plan and if you don't execute on that plan. Am I right in, in saying that that was the mood as well in the domain? I think that's a fair assessment. I think usually the, the only difference in, in how I would define is that, you know, the IQ and the intent is there. What is not there is that this perception that a nonprofit is not a business. Therefore, mm -hmm. I need to run it with the passion, not with efficiency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so these people, uh, the vast majority of them, do have the IQ and do have even the experience and the background to do that properly. But we have this ingrained perception that because it is a nonprofit, I'm doing because I can save a life. But what if with the same amount of resources, I could save 10 lives? And that comes out of efficiency and processes and whatsoever. So that is the gap, in my opinion, uh, in the average nonprofit you know, field, yeah. which is uh, a nonprofit is a business still. The only difference is that you still need to, rev to have revenue, whether that is from donors, from campaigns, from events, it doesn't matter. You still need revenue. The only difference is that whatever is net out of that revenue, you're reinvesting in the cause, but that doesn't change the fact that you're a business and you still need to be positive <laughs> at the end of, of the year. Yeah. And I think that's the gap on the mentality is that, no, I'm doing out of passion. If I can save one life, that's good enough. But sometimes and, and often you can save a lot more lives with the same amount of resources, if you really take a business approach to how to, you know, affect change. Yeah, use science, use math, use numbers to calculate and measure stuff, you know. Um, this brain, a lot of people, you know, are the opposite in the business world. They use their brain way too much and they don't have enough heart, um, which is why, you know, I think the best social startups are like 80% brain, 20% heart, in my opinion. Because you still need the heart, you need the passion, you know. But if you look at Wall Street, for example, it's like almost 100% brain. That's why people kill themselves. That's why they become become unhappy billionaires, you know. Um, I think that's that's also a problem. How would you describe the the state of social startup? Do you think there's more and more of these social startups happening nowadays? I do. I think that is very little because of the wall street mentality okay. um, and a lot more because of the millennial kind of mm. approach to living which is you know i gotta be meaningful in some way i gotta contribute in some way so the entrepreneurs of our generation charles um they whether they do it for mark 
marketing purposes or you know growth um there is a lot more need to adapt and include you know equality intentions and impact in other ways even when you're looking for a full-on you know fintech fully from for profit and all of that there are a lot of elements in there that we wouldn't see five ten years ago and you know that when we talk about diversity in leadership and board member and whatnot. So there are a lot of change that comes out of the fact that uh, the the group that is now being the next generation of leaders or the current and next generation of leaders um, are looking at a meaningful existence of their businesses and a meaningful you know uh, um, play and impact yeah. of their businesses. I, I'm, I'm. How can I say this? I'm. I'm not pleased with um, what I'm seeing in in my generation. Um, I'm. I'm not a good sample um, size. I'm not a good sample to evaluate of my generation. But if I check at you know people around my age or younger, I'm kind of scared. You know to to see what what there is. I see a lot of too much emotions. You know too much heart. Not enough IQ um, in in these generations. But if you also look, I mean, all generations, they have pros and cons, but I see a lot of emotional confusion in our generation. Um, I think we went too deep in the, the EQ um, part of things. You know, that's, that's what I'm seeing. I'm not seeing efficiency, you know. I'm seeing projects that um, are given up on, like, quite quickly. I'm seeing people that don't really know what they want in life that are still searching for themselves in my generation um i'm seeing yeah like way more chaos than past generations i mean boomers you know like uh, they might be criticized saying that they got everything handy after the second world war for example but they they use numbers they use um science uh, the only thing with boomers is that they're too ingrained in the their comfort zone you know they found what was working for them and they kept on doing it, but the the old generation, I think they wanted to rebel against that. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to change purpose every day, you know? So I agree. what, what do you think about that? And how, how can we all. like meet, how can we meet in the middle, the, the middle? I don't agree with you at all, Charles. I think that the, there's a, a psychological um, journey uh, that we are witnessing here where first we were way too much on the iq side right the stability the mathematical thought of i can pay the for my existence five, i can take care of the nine to five the stability right yeah. um and then we are over um an overcorrection period right now and the overcorrection hmm. period is naturally uh, characterized by the fact that we are going all the way on the other side, way too emotional, way too uh, edgy and sensitive, you know, uh, to to the changes that we are in there. Um, history tells us that over time, we have a balance in between that IQ and that EQ, and we found their core center in which we have a bit of both, mm -hmm. right? We went from a very IQ place to a very EQ place right now, and then we should technically find their common ground over over you know the next few years in here and that does not only impact um or relates to the business side of things includes to the politics we are completely polarized around the world right we have one side the other side um and we should find i i, I used to tell this this 
example of California, right? When we have Schwarzenegger as the governor of California and was this completely contrast in between. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I like that example because California became that even the right side of the, the politics spectrum there um, became a lot more progressive compared mm. to what the state needs um, compared to the rest of the country of the US, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I maybe I'm just way too optimistic in this perspective, but I would like to believe that our polarization leads to finding of common ground yeah. because there are only two paths and that includes business here. We either oh, yeah, polarize completely and we are completely emotional and completely IQ or we find common ground. And yeah. in the case of politics, we are talking about, you know, either a civil war or we find common ground. <laughs> in the case of business, we are talking about just being all, you know, social businesses or actually being businesses with purposes. And you're, you're hearing the dog in the background move and getting fed. Um, that's my parents' dog, though. It's not uh, an adopted one. It's a... Uh... Cocker, uh, black cocker, she's so funny. Um, you're you're totally right. I mean, and that's that's the laws of physics, right? It's in everything. It's kind of the the J curve, if you want, um, or the hockey stick curve, however you want to picture that curve. But uh, you know, it's the storyline in movies. Uh, it's the the climax and and so forth. So yeah, we need that. Um, we need to explore both extremes as humans um we need to reach the bottom we need to reach the top you know that's how we make sense of things you know that's how we define kind of our boundaries as humans would you describe yourself as someone that's kind of extreme or are you more moderated or did you became moderated uh with time i think i became moderated with time for sure i think maturity brings us a a different perspective and respect for you know the the variations of opinions and perspectives you know in the whole spectrum of life and businesses um but i i think i don't know you know it's hard always hard to talk about yourself but i think i am an optimistic kind of open person i understand different perspectives and i hope that i can make different people feel comfortable in their own skin in, in yeah. that spectrum there all yeah. i want is to do the best i can for the ones i love and maybe hopefully you know leave a little trail behind me once i'm gone that i've beautiful. done something good yeah beautiful i call it um enlightenment through business you've probably became a different person managing other humans you know which is a a wonderful uh, and scary thing to do at the same time. I have two more questions yeah. for you because we're also almost coming um, to an end. Both are geographical questions. So I want to just know about your time in San Francisco in the Silicon Valley. How was your experience there? Was it worth it? And that was in the 2014. Tell us a bit more about that. To me, it was a life-changing experience. Uh, there's a few different reasons for that. I mean, I was going through a divorce back then okay. with my first wife, and, yeah. and, and it was a transformation in the personal sense of my being. Yeah. Um, it was transformational as well because it really um, helped me better understand the entrepreneurial universe, yeah. which to me was fairly new at the time. Mm. Um, and I think the third layer of that is um, it was to understand, somewhat understand my place in, in the world. Um, at that time, I got a job in Sweden. I left San Francisco, went to Stockholm for a while. 
um, before quitting that job and coming back to, to the U.S. But it, it, it was from an emotional perspective, it was a very transformational phase for me. Professionally, it was a lot of uh, experimenting. I'm not going to lie to you, Charles, um, as a Latino in the U.S., uh, it may be a sad, you know, uh, af affirmation to put it out there, but I happen to be white. So unless I talk, nobody knows I am Latino. So right. I don't suffer as much of the rejection that happens out there. Okay. And even then, like with a master's degree, a UN prize and lots of experience and you know, sold a company before, the first job I could get in the US was paying me $20,000 a year, okay. which hmm. was less than I had been making you know, five years earlier in Brazil, which okay. currency-wise is like this massive gap, what? right? Uh, so, so there was a lot of adapting to the reality that, um, I'm sorry if I'm being too, too honest here, but to the reality that, that nothing that I had done before, Sweden, Japan, Brazil, nothing really mattered in the U.S. The U.S. had this really race-driven uh, uh, approach to one's value that mm. that even though sadly i am lucky to be white and not have that you know ahead of time as soon as i talk and you hear my accent you know i'm not from here and 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 i got to experience that side quite a bit so it was hmm. very demeaning for for a while in that transition so you know it's a bit of that story there but over time and and, and just keeping your head down and doing what you do best it, it worked out just fine and I, I love my life i love my family i have two kids you know we we are happy uh thankfully and and i love the us in that sense um i, I think it's just a, a a fair understanding that 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 there are different variables at play yeah. in the different you know journeys that take 100%. place well, thank you for sharing that. And the next question, which is the last one, we'll try to make it short because we've got less than four minutes left on Zoom. But um, how is the startup scene in Brazil? Is is this growing? Is this an opportunity? Is this something you're into right now? It's a fantastic opportunity. Over yeah. the past five five to, to eight years, the, the Brazilian market has been exploding from yeah. a... a uh, um, uh, startup opportunity ground. Hmm. We have some of the largest fintechs in South America, is which is one of the largest you know markets in the world. We're talking yeah. Brazil is the eighth largest economy in the freaking planet, um, and we're talking about all of South America, not all of it, but the vast majority of South America and innovation being driven by the Brazilian ecosystem in there. So it's definitely a huge opportunity in Brazil. Um, we have had a lot of advancement in the entrepreneurial journey and the tech uh, approach to how businesses are built. Um, down there, I am involved. I'm going back to Brazil now in October. I have a few um, university talks there and entrepreneurial groups and, and uh, accelerators that I will be talking to um, next month, I guess. Um, mm. And it, it's, it's a very thriving ecosystem. It, it's, it's, it's pretty cool, actually. I would yeah, love for exciting. you to go there, Charles. Yo, I need to go. I almost went to uh, Florianopolis a couple of years uh, back when I was oh, in Argentina. Nice. And uh, yeah, funny thing, I didn't even know that Brazil was considered Latino. I think I, I thought Brazil was like Brazil. 
I, I don't I didn't know that you guys considered yourself as as Latinos because of Portuguese. I, I don't know why in my brain, but uh, that's a, a fun fact. Um, anyway, that has been cool. And yet, like um, I need to hit Brazil in the next couple of years. I'll, I'll let you know when I'm there. You probably know uh, the, be the best uh, steak place around. Uh, they have a lot of good meat in Brazil. So uh, and beaches and the uh, forest and et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Uh, I'll, I'll defend you have to go to rio just because i'm from there and i love there yeah, yeah. Rio but is. Uh, if, when you go you let me know maybe we get to be there at the same time yeah yeah, yeah. and uh yeah I, I mean from an investing standpoint uh latam is like uh number one on my radar um startups from there are definitely the most exciting um there's not a lot of quality entrepreneurs you know and when you find them they can demolish a market you know because the market is is very ripe for these solutions um, as people got connected to internet and got uh, kind of uh, in touch with like what uh, the others are, are living in this world and economically they're more, making more money and so forth. So very, very interesting. Um, last question for you, Arthur, where can uh, people find out more about you? I think the closest place to understanding my journey would be LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of information about me there. Otherwise, send me a note. My email, happy to share, is Artur, no H, A R T U R, at adopets, A D O P T S dot com. Um, and I'm happy to be of service to anyone out there starting their journey, in the middle of their journey. I think that people like you and me, Charles, it's, it's we got to get together. It, yeah. it is a, I have a mastermind for you, so I'll send you that after. <laughs> I would love that. I would love to. I think it, it is, if we were to be honest, is a very complicated, challenging, and if you don't mind my language, shitty journey for most people. But if we yeah. stick together, we actually might see the pot of gold right at the end of it, yeah. as long as we are working together. Yeah, man. Super good. Thank you for your time today. Have yourself a great weekend. You too, Charles. Thanks for having me. Have a beautiful one.